Hi, and welcome to Unlimited, the podcast platform that gives voice to remarkable mothers and women from the Arab world to inspire, engage, and drive growth. In Unlimited Perspective Series, we welcome inspiring women and mothers who embrace life with innovative perspectives and whose missions and achievements are making a mark. For this new episode of Unlimited Perspective Series, we're pleased to introduce you to Afsa Lodi, an American journalist who has been covering fashion in the Middle East for the past decade, while expressing a deep fascination on the relationship between culture, modernity, and religion. Born and raised in New York City and relocated to Dubai with her family at the age of 14, Hafsa combined her studies in journalism with a passion and master degree in Islamic law. She has covered topics like honor killing in Canada's South Asian communities, and the use of DNA evidence in rape cases in Pakistan, before turning to the fashion journalist bit, writing for the national newspaper, Velvet Magazine, and Sour Flair, just to name a few. To address her combined interest in fashion, culture, modernity, and religion, Hafsa has recently published her debut book titled Modesty, a Fashion Paradox. So let's explore with Afsa the causes, contradictions, and key players of the global modest fashion movement, a trend to conceal rather than reveal. Hi, Afsa, and thank you for joining us today at Unlimited. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get straight into the book that you just released um, with a very intriguing title and approach, Modesty, a Fashion Paradox. So you're not just jumping on a trend, but you're dissecting it. Help us to break it down. What is modesty, first and foremost? How does it combine with fashion? And inevitably, where do you see the paradox? Yes. So the title of my book is Modesty, a Fashion Paradox. And it was kind of um, inspired by this whole modest fashion trend that has become this big buzzword on the runways and in high street stores and on social media. So if you start by just defining modest fashion, what is modest fashion? It's really um, different depending on different women's interpretations and definitions of modesty. But overall, typically, uh, modest fashion uh, pertains to clothing that covers the shoulders and covers the knee, and also oftentimes up to the wrists and up to the ankles. And also, um, it's the silhouettes are loose and the neck lines are high, not plunging, so no cleavage is showing. Um, uh, so it's not skin tight, and it's also not made from see-through materials. So kind of um, covering the body overall uh, in a stylish way. From the way you describe it so far, this is a traditional approach across uh, different cultures and religions, uh, correct? So the paradox, um, which we can see, it, so if you look at modesty from a traditional point of view, uh, many religious uh, interpretations of modesty from Christianity to Judaism and Islam, modesty is kind of advised upon women in all of these religious scriptures of these religions. And oftentimes it, it uh, comes with the saying, you know, don't stand out or uh, try to blend in, don't attract attention to yourself. So that's kind of the guideline of modesty, aside from what to cover up exactly, how many, how much of your skin you should show. The kind of um, feeling religiously is that women should maybe not stand out and women should 
traditionally culturally be away from the public eye. So this is just a traditional uh, conservative uh, interpretation, a religious interpretation. I'm not saying this is what I believe. Absolutely. And what about the paradox? Uh, where do you see these coming into place? So this mm-hmm. this then um, kind of conflicts with modest fashion, how we know it today, because modest fashion today, we're seeing women in hijab on runways, which are broadcasted on international television and are all over um, the internet and social media. And then we're seeing the rise of the modest fashion blogger who is who basically shows off her modest fashion, uh, her outfits, herself on Instagram. And so the paradox kind of lies in the fact that these are very public spheres that these women are showcasing modest fashion on. And it may go against the traditional idea that modesty is kind of not to attract attention. Whereas whereas these women are definitely attracting attention and you know helping modesty become more mainstream. So that's one of the paradoxes. There are a few, though, but another one is, um, shall I go into the, the other Please. paradoxes as well? Yes. Yeah, so another one is uh, the idea of modest spending. So if you live modestly, you kind of live humbly and you don't kind of splurge on designer fashion. But we're seeing these high fashion houses like Gucci and even some some designers are making specific modest wear collections such as Michael Kors, Carolina Herrera, um, specifically for Ramadan time often. And if you think of modest spending, it may go against the ideals of splurging and spending lots on designer fashion. So that's another paradox. Um, again, another one is specifically when it relates to the hijab, because we're seeing a lot of times the faces of this modest fashion movement are hijabi Muslim women, young hijabi Muslim women looking really cool and stylish while still covering their hair. And if you look at traditional interpretations of the hijab, it was meant to be kind of a veil of privacy and segregation to segregate the two genders, male and female. Um, This is, again, another traditional view. I'm not saying it's my view, but this is a traditional view of the hijab. And then there's no kind of veil of privacy when the when the hijab is being showcased on in the public platform uh, on social media, on runways. So. Again, there are many different arguments. If you in my book, I talk to a lot of hijabi women who kind of counter this argument. One Halima Aden, she's kind of the most notable face of modest fashion in America. She's a Somali refugee who um, won a Miss. She she competed in a Miss Minnesota beauty, beauty pageant in the states, and then went on to starring um, in a Kanye West fashion show in New York Fashion Week uh, for his Yeezy line, and she kind of really skyrocketed to fame after that. She's worked for Alberta Peretti, Max Mara, and a lot of other designers since then. So she came up with um, this argument. She said, if I was a teacher or if I was a student, I'm going to school and I'm, you know, I'm going, I'm in public with my hijab. So what's the difference if I'm in a magazine in my hijab? I'm still in the public. I'm still working with men. I'm still, you know, um, working with both genders and in that public eye. So what's the difference? So it was interesting to hear that that argument but it's yeah so my book kind of explores the different um the conservative arguments and then these liberal arguments and how women themselves feel and oftentimes it's very frustrating because it's men who are kind of dictating these conservative traditional um beliefs onto women when you look at it from a religious perspective it's often like the conservative patriarchal men who are kind of uh judging women for being in the public so yeah it's it's a very interesting debate 
And this is a very critical point. So do you think that there are still cultural, social, or even just family pressures in terms of what to wear and how to wear it? Or is it true that it's becoming more a personal choice? So the women who um, are kind of pioneering this modest fashion movement on social media, these designers and these entrepreneurs and these models and bloggers, they're very much taking the stand of this is my personal choice, this is my personal identity, and this is how I'm um, portraying fashion. It's liberating, it's empowering, it's empowering, it's feminist. Um, so if you look at these women um, in the public eye right now, it's it's very much their own choice and their own kind of stance they're taking. But we can't ignore the fact that in many countries, in many families, in many cultures, there are these uh, patriarchal systems where the males in the family are the leaders and the heads of the family, and they kind of dictate uh, what the women should wear. It's interesting because I was just... Um, uh, a friend of mine on Twitter is uh, launching a book next year, I believe, or maybe at the end of this year called Hijab and Red Lipstick. And mm -hmm. she's uh, she tweeted about the book and somebody she tweeted um, something about how you can still wear hijab and wear lipstick. And this man tweeted back at her saying, I dictate what the family, what the women in my family wear and you can't attract attention or something like that. So it's really interesting that even on social media in um, this modern world, there are still men who are dictating, that's the word he used, what their, what their women in their family should wear. And they're using social media to kind of troll and kind of um, get their, their really rigid traditional view across. So yeah, we can't ignore that there are still women who are um, forced to wear modest dress or if not forced, highly um, advised to. But that's not to say that every woman is forced into this, and especially the women leading this movement. Um, it's not being forced is something that they're very uh, against, and they're very uh, pro-choice in the terms of what what you can wear and how you can um, showcase your personality through fashion. And in your own experience, considering that you spent half of your life in the States and half in UAE, how different is the approach to modest wear there and here? It's definitely, um, it's definitely very different, but also I haven't been back in the States for 15 years. I haven't lived there. So times have changed as well. But when I lived there, um, modest fashion were two words that were never put together. There wasn't a thing called modest fashion. It wasn't in fashion to be modest. Um, you know, when I was growing up as a teenager, like the styles that were trending were short denim shorts and tank tops and those bandage bodycon dresses. At least as a teenager, that's kind of the attire that was cool and trending. Um, nowadays, I think it's different there with this whole modest fashion movement, thanks to these um, these women who are spearheading this movement. But in the today, there's still a difference uh, in terms of what modest fashion looks like in the States. For, for instance, especially if you look at, there's a lot of Jewish and Christian bloggers who have, I know uh, we look at modest fashion and we think hijab, but there's a lot of um, non-Muslim women who have been kind of fighting for modest fashion for years. And if you um, search on Instagram, hashtag modest fashion, you'll find a lot of these and they, they look very different. A lot of them were, you know, denim midi skirts that just hit the knee or right below and they'll wear fitted blouses or um, layering really cool prairie dresses and, um, you know, wearing cool hats. And that's kind of their interpretation of modesty. Whereas if you look in the Arabian world, uh, modesty is very different here. It's part of our cultural norm to dress modestly. It's the national dress is influenced by modest fashion. So silhouettes are kind of more flowing and more um, that you have that Arabian flair, that kaftan and 
abaya kind of kimono uh, influence as well. And talking about modest fashion as a trend or movement which started a few years back, as you're saying, but what and who initiated it? So modest fashion, um, women have been trying to make modest fashion mainstream for decades, especially in places like the U.S., surprisingly, where um, there are a lot large pockets of women who identify with modest dressing uh, from the Mormons in Utah to the Jews in New York. They've been trying to kind of make modest fashion more accessible to these practicing women. And they've had their success, but only within their communities. It hasn't really gone beyond that and entered the mainstream industry. Um, when I would say when Halima Aden kind of became the first hijabi runway model in 2017, and these brands like um, Gucci and Valentino started doing more of these kind of granny chic inspired trends, which involved a lot of layering and a lot of coverage, just um, just happened to involve a lot of coverage. I don't think it was a calculated decision to make modest fashion, but a lot of these trends just did really well, not only among um, Muslim women, but among just millennials in general who found that these layering techniques were really cool and these romantic dresses were really pretty. And um, no, you don't have to show your body to look cool and trendy and stylish. So I think around 2015, 2017 is when we really saw this um, modesty entering the mainstream. And it's also because these uh, financial projections came out um, estimating Muslim spending power to be in the multi-billions of dollars. So people, hundreds of billions, so I think it's around 300 to 400 billion dollars uh, the Muslim fashion market is projected at. So it's really um, due to these financial projections also that these designers and fashion houses are kind of jumping on the modesty bandwagon to kind of attract that stereotypical Muslim Gulf uh, spending power. It was too appealing as an untapped market for not wanting to get a slice of it, right? <laughs> and and it really, um, once one brand did it, I mean, Tommy Hilfiger, Michael Kors, Carolina Herrera, Mango, H&M, they've all kind of experimented with modest fashion, whether it's during Ramadan and just from Middle East or whether it's on a global scale. So there are really a lot of, and, and some have done it really well, some have some have not done it very well, but some have um, some have been really successful. And I think the success stories are when these brands work with women from the modest fashion community. So if you look at Uniqlo, they uh, recruited Hannah Tajima, who's a modest fashion blogger and designer, and they kind of worked with her to make a collaboration. And, and that's been going on for years. It wasn't a one-time thing. They, she just came out with her latest one. And then there's also... Um, American Eagle, they're known for their denims and their jeans. And they worked with uh, Halima Aden to make a denim hijab. And it was like, it was hailed as this all-American uh, hijab, which was very cool. They're using their own um, aesthetic and they're combining it with uh, a woman from the community. Whereas some brands such as Mango have faced criticism because their modest or Ramadan collections are not always very modest. Sometimes they're um, see-through fabric. Sometimes there's uh, like a strappy dress or jumpsuit included, which also doesn't mean it's not modest because modest fashion bloggers are showing time again that you can layer these clothes to make them modest. Um, but I know a lot of uh, women really criticized the, the mango collection when it first started. Looking closely at this region, can you give us some examples of local and independent designers who brought modest wear to a new level? Yeah, so especially, I mean, this region is really, we have so many um, thriving modest wear designers 
with a lot of potential to make it big internationally, and some already have. If you look at Bugesta, for instance, uh, Bugesta is a fashion brand based in uh, D3, Dubai Design District in Dubai. And she's maybe five, six years old, not that old, um, but her her designs are very chic and very sleek, and they're very um, adaptable for modest fashion. It is technically a modest fashion brand, but I don't think she labels it as a modest fashion brand. So it also attracts a lot of Western um, consumers who don't necessarily look for modest fashion. And she's actually had a lot of celebrities wear her designs from um, a Saudi princess to uh, the model Karolina Kirkova, um, the Bollywood actress Sonam Kapoor, and Beyonce has even worn her designs. So it's she's doing really well internationally and not all of them are wearing them in a markedly modest way. And I think that's um, that's that's probably a point to show that designs need to be versatile and not just kind of stuck to one definition of modesty because in order to really broaden your market and your target audience, um, you really have to be kind of, you have to appeal to that that diverse range of modesty. So I think Beyonce wore one of her robes, which could have been worn like a closed abaya type, uh, you know, kimono robe, but she wore it open over a bodycon dress. So her legs and um, like her body was showing, but like she had this robe casually thrown on top of it. Um, so that was really cool. She added her own style to it. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, technically she was wearing a design by a modest wear brand, but it didn't, it didn't have to be um, stereotypically modest. So I think, I think Bugas has done really well. And then another label uh, is Dolce by Sofia, based in Dubai. She's a Libyan Mexican designer and she's a mom of three, I think, three or four, she, three, three. I don't know how she does it. Oh, she might be on her fourth, actually. She just had a baby. Um, I don't know how she does it. She's done amazing. And she, her designs have even worn, been worn by Gwen Stefani and um, American uh, black hijabi rapper Neelam. And she has a really nice approach to modest. So she doesn't she calls her brand a modest, inclusive label. So it's not just modest, it's inclusive towards different interpretations of modesty. And one of her campaigns featured a t-shirt and on it, it said more than a hijabi, more than a non-jabi to kind of showcase that you're more than um, what's on your head. And it's not just about the hijab and it's kind of just embracing all different interpretations of modesty. So I really, I really like that. I actually, I'm supposed to order one of her t-shirts because I really love that saying. I might want to order one as well now that you mention it. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you the link after this. It's online. And back to your book, as you're saying, it's not about your own point of view, but you bring the perspective of, I believe, 40 different women. So how did you select them within UAE and actually across GCC and beyond? And can you briefly tell us a couple of stories that particularly stood out for you? Yeah, definitely. Um there, there are over 40 voices in the book, as you said, and they're from academics to designers to entrepreneurs to um, fashion bloggers, and they're really from all across the world. I started in Dubai, so I got a few Dubai voices and UAE voices, GCC voices, but then went to London, um, did some interviews there, and Turkey, uh, went to um, Modest Fashion Week Istanbul and interviewed some people there. There are also people from Indonesia and um, the U.S. and Canada in the book. So there's really a diverse uh, mix of different voices. Um, one of the stories that kind of stood out for me was uh, this brand called Abaya Addict. She actually launched her, her uh, the designer's uh, name is Dr. Diana Khalil. And I remembered this brand from growing up in Dubai from when I was like 
maybe 18, 19. She lived here and she started the brand here. And then all of a sudden she moved to the U.S. And then the brand was based in the U.S. And so I asked her, why, why, why did you move there? Isn't modest fashion is like, it's a big thing in this region. Wouldn't it be smarter to stay? And she said, no, uh, most of her orders were in fact coming, more than 80%, I think, of her orders were coming from the U.S. Uh, so she actually moved the brand there because that's where the demand was for modest fashion, not the Gulf where there are already so many modest fashion options. So I found that very interesting that as a result of kind of this modest fashion movement, um, the demand for stylish modest wear has really increased worldwide. And the U.S. especially is seeing this kind of lack of mainstream modest wear. So um, I found it really interesting that she actually moved bases across the world because her brand is doing better there. So, yeah, I found that super inspiring. It's interesting how this topic keeps bringing us from Dubai to U.S. and vice versa. You grew up in New York and came to Dubai as a teenager. You love fashion, you are modest and beautiful, and choose not to veil. Considering you just had a baby girl, fast forward 15 years when she'll be a teenager herself, how do you think that you will guide her regarding this? And congratulations, by the way. So I think in a general approach to fashion, I would love to guide her to, to see fashion how I do as this kind of creating, uh, creative kind of unlimited experience of styling and it's fun and you can be crafty and have these DIY approaches to kind of mixing and matching different clothing. So I really enjoy, of course, I project a lot of my uh, aesthetic onto her. Already she's wearing a lot of Hello Kitty because I'm a, <laughs> I'm a long time Hello Kitty fan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, definitely I'll, I would love to, to guide her in terms of the creativity and just let her know that, you know, the, the world is your oyster when it comes to fashion. You can mix and match and play with it and make it fun. And in terms of um, modesty, I do, approach, um, I do approach modest fashion from a religious perspective personally, that modesty as a Muslim woman is important to me. So I will, I will hand that down to her, I hope. Um, but I would also kind of want to emphasize that modesty, inner modesty is just as important as outer modesty. So how, um, how humble you are, how gracious you are, how kind and compassionate you are uh, to other people, to your peers. And also that it's a quality incumbent on both men and women. A lot of um, families and cultures tend to place all of the onus of modesty on the women in the family, whereas the men can do whatever they want. Um, it's not just about modesty, it's about men have, there's such double standards often, men have no curfews and the women have to be home by eight o'clock or the men are allowed in mixed gender birthday parties, the, the girls aren't. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very, um, there's really this, this double standard in, in my culture, especially, and I really would not want to uh, hand that down to my daughter. Everything would be equal. Beautiful. And how ready is it the society towards a book like yours that addresses so many discrepancies and contradictions? Now that you're in the process of promoting your book, uh, have you been receiving predominantly positive feedback or criticism as well? Yeah, overwhelmingly positive, actually. We've had a lot of great press um, in the UAE and surprisingly the US. It, it just launched last month in the US and it's doing really well there. Um, I think because the U.S. has this appetite for social revolution and as we're seeing with the Black Lives Movement that stemmed there and 
um, the, you know, the call for diversity and inclusion. So I think this book is particularly resonating with US readers and American Muslim readers and Jewish readers and Christian readers there who, as I mentioned, have been really um, supporting and endorsing and creating modest fashion for years and are only now being recognized. So I think the book's doing quite well in the US. Um, in the UAE as well, it's, it's interesting to have this perspective here, even though um, modest fashion is kind of a known here already. It's not a new unknown thing. Um, yeah, uh, the feedback, some of the feedback has been that it's interesting because you go through so many edits and you always wonder whether you should have listened to the editor or you should have kept something that they took out. And I remember my first draft that I submitted had 10,000 words cut from it. And a lot, it was so heartbreaking. Um, and now I kind of looking back, I wish we had kept some of it because some of the feedback, some of the negative feedback has been that, you know, the historical context could have been elaborated on more or the different, how different countries um, treated modest fashion. Cause there is a section where we go into Turkey and Egypt and Iran and Saudi Arabia and Indonesia and how the history of modest dress in those countries. But then a lot of that was edited out and I kind of wish we had kept it. But ah, it's a sign. I can foresee a sequel of this first book. Maybe. <laughs> and apart from the historical approach, have you received any other criticism or should we say constructive feedback, uh, if you don't mind sharing it? Yeah, I know some of the ones that I've seen on the reviews were that this is a very, um, that I approach the topic from a Muslim perspective and that most of the voices in the book are kind of that Muslim perspective, even though we, I did interview a Jewish fashion blogger and designer and a Christian as well. The majority of the voices are Muslim. And I think I came at that from, because a lot of myself is ingrained in this book as well. So I kind of came to the book from uh, this Muslim perspective. And so a lot of the women I interviewed naturally were Muslim, especially given how kind of the faces moving this modest fashion revolution forward now are visibly Muslim hijabi faces. So it's kind of seen as this Muslim movement, even though it's really not. It's a it's a multi kind of this interfaith, multicultural movement that also appeals to non-religious women completely. But yeah, that's been one of the other the other criticisms that maybe it's it's more relevant to Muslim readers. Whereas I hope it'll be relevant to and applicable and enlightening and informative to all types of readers. How have you been coping between the promotion of your book, despite the travel restrictions, your commitment as a journalist and parenting, of course? Oh, it's been tough, but uh, with a supportive husband, <laughs> a very supportive husband who um, will take over the, the parenting duty whenever he needs to. And it, that's been great. Otherwise, I don't know how I would have done this. Um, we had a, a lot of book tours planned and a lot of events in the London. There was one with London College of Fashion and one with the University of um, London SOAS. Uh, so we had a lot of events, but they all got cancelled. So naturally, through COVID, we've been doing um, online um, online talks and kind of podcast discussions like this one. And so mostly I'm doing them after baby sleeps. So after 8, 9 p.m. Um, but otherwise getting getting a good babysitting hour from the husband. Uh, so lots of late nights and lots of cups of tea are getting me through this. Yep. Welcome to the club. Now, last but not least, our paramount question. What does unlimited mean to you? Unlimited. It's such a uh, it's such an amazing word. So, I mean, as women, we're often put into boxes or these boxes with labels like 
you're a mom, you're a good cook, you're a good wife, you're a career woman. Uh, but for me, unlimited means rejecting this idea of being boxed in and kind of the freedom to be multiple things and have multiple talents, uh, whether it's family, career, passion, hobby, and just um, kind of thrive in all areas, not just one. I couldn't agree more. Afsa, thank you so much for joining Unlimited today. It's been a tremendous pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We hope you found it inspiring and fulfilling. Please subscribe to Unlimited on your favorite podcast app so you won't miss out on our next stories. To learn more about our content, please log on to our website and follow us at unlimited.me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter and help us building a truly unlimited community. Thank you.